very good morning to you on what is technically Fellowship Day 253. And at the time of recording, it was 247 when I last hit the record button. So that gives you an idea of how busy I've allowed myself to get at the start of the new year. Um, how many things on the list of excuses not to be here <laughs> I've penned for myself. But here we are, uh, cutting straight to it. One of the things that's kept me busy that I'm actually really excited to share with you is that I have now sent my imposter phenomenon book, You Are Not a Fraud, off to a potential editor for review. So that's keeping things on track. I'm aiming to get the book out to you first half of 2022, if not more ambitiously, the first quarter, so by March 2022. On the way there, I'm releasing for you on the podcast format some seminars on the imposter phenomenon theme that I've previously put out on the YouTube channel. So all the seminars are still there. I've got a full playlist of three long-form seminars on the imposter phenomenon that are captured around chapters of my book. There's several other interviews there as well where I talk about the topic. And here in this first seminar that I'm releasing for you on the Read Indeed podcast is from, I think, one of the very first imposter phenomenon seminars I gave back in late 2020 for the University of Edinburgh. So shout out to Sophia Constantinou, who, if you're listening, I apologise profusely for how I may have mispronounced your name. But thanks to Sophia and the folks at Edinburgh for inviting me along. And this first seminar was my broad of overview of the three things that have stayed with me as tools to manage, not to dismiss, not crush or cure the imposter phenomenon, but manage it. So the seminar that you're about to hear uh, talks a little bit about my own career path as a setting to then three main tools that I share for managing the imposter phenomenon. This is a longer form podcast than normal. After the seminar, there's a nice vibrant question session as well. So hopefully you can take something from that more conversational part of the podcast. Without further ado, I'm hoping that you'll enjoy this discussion on the imposter phenomenon. If you want to support the book, you can head along to the links uh, in the podcast description. Those will mainly be around the Lean Pub ebook format that I'm putting out first. That's L E A N Pub, leanpub.com forward slash not a fraud. So that link's in the description. You can head along there if you want to support the book and find out when it's eventually launched. For now, please do enjoy this seminar on the imposter phenomenon and three ways to manage this most common of experiences. So if you're you're here tonight, it's because Sophia's very kindly um, advertised for us an event to speak about one very specific aspect of some of the, the mental challenges that we might face along the roads of our career. And specifically tonight, I'm speaking about the imposter phenomenon or what we might more commonly but uh, inaccurately here called the imposter syndrome. Um, so before we, we get to that, uh, Sophia's also asked me to briefly introduce myself. 
Uh, as I said, some of you know me, but I'm assuming that most of you do not. The main thing I want to share with you that relates to this audience this evening is my chemistry background. Uh, I'm indeed a chemist by training and I still work as an academic chemist, uh, running my own research team, lecturing uh, and everything you might imagine that an academic does. But there's more to that and let's get back to the theme of this evening and give you a little bit more of an overview of how I got into this chair this evening to be speaking to you. My career that I've tell, told you a little bit about already started roughly back in 2006. That's when I walked through the doors for my undergraduate chemistry degree. And that's still going up until now in 2020. But the short version of that is this. Throughout that entire time, I've had the real privilege of working in several different universities, working with a lot of different people, working in a lot of different industrial sectors, and the icing on that cake is to have been afforded bite-sized chunks of travel throughout the world. It's been a hell of a ride to date, but this is what I really want to get to for this evening. As easy as it is to look very decorated and to say all the good and positive things that have happened, at every step along this road, I've always felt like I've been the little fish in the little bowl, jumping in to a bigger bowl, with bigger fish, scarier fish, and fish that can swim a lot better than I can. And this gets to the heart of what we'll see in the rest of the slides and hopefully in our discussion later this evening. It doesn't matter how senior you get. It doesn't matter at what point of the career I'm talking about when I tell you more of this story. It, it's at every single part from undergrad to PhD, from PhD to postdoc, from postdoc to independent academic, from academic onwards and sideways and to business as well. It doesn't matter what stage I've been at. I've always felt like I've been the little fish trying to move in to a bigger pond. And it scared me every step along the way. And this is what I want to tell you this evening, ways that I've come to try to manage that more so that I can take those next steps without the fear of failure and without giving myself reasons to never try it at all. And I hope this is what you can take away from the remainder of the talk this evening. And what you will see in the forthcoming slides now are some of the things that have really genuinely helped me get to the point of managing these scarier experiences. And what I show you is a series of quotes from scientists and other folks that have stuck with me that I think articulate the message well to put it across to you. And I'll share with you three main techniques that have come to stick with me. Uh, among many other things, these are the things that I've found to be useful tools to manage the scarier times in my career to take the next step. And because we're in this privileged position of, uh, you know, studying and working in university, you know, it's not... Uh, unfair to say that we are an intelligent community. It's a privileged position, but it's one where we're trying to work hard and use our intellect to drive our career. But Albert Einstein said something really profound about us as a community, and that is this. Happiness in intelligent people is the rarest thing I know. When I first read that, that really struck home for me because what we see in our community in academia is a growing trend, more discussion on mental health in general. This 
is a vocation for many of us, but it's not an easy sector to work in. Let's be frank, let's be very clear. And it can be that in our sector, there are higher levels of many aspects of mental stress, more so than in sister sectors or completely different sectors. We seem to be on the darker side of a lot of the mental struggles that one can speak about in our careers. And so as intelligent people, sometimes happiness is indeed the rarest thing we can know. But we're not speaking broadly about mental health this evening. We're speaking about this one particular aspect, imposter syndrome. And when you first hear that, it's less about the term imposters like this, and syndrome seems to be the big, red, scary term. But what I want to share with you this evening is that as scary as that sounds, it's actually misnamed. The imposter syndrome was originally formulated and is still spoken about in psychological circles as the imposter phenomenon. So the message to you is that this is not something to be afraid of. This is something that you can understand and learn to manage if it's something that affects you or if it doesn't affect you, how it affects people in your care. Now, in terms of describing what imposter syndrome or the imposter phenomenon actually is, one quote from this young woman, Chika Okoro, really stuck with me. So she was a Harvard MBA and a number of years ago she gave a TED talk in which she defined imposter experiences like this. 99% of me knows I deserve to be here. I'm smart, I work hard, but there's that 1%. The imposter phenomenon is the sensation of feeling that you are a fraud despite masses of physical written or verbal evidence that comes your way to say anything to the contrary. You do deserve to be here. You are smart. There's evidence to say that you've worked hard. But in your mind, there might still be that 1%, the little whisper that says otherwise, that someone's going to find you out. Someone's going to chuck you out of the building and call you a fake or a phony or a fraud. That's, in a nutshell, what imposter experiences and the imposter phenomenon is. Another way to put that is, is that we can fret and think too much that we don't know so much versus what other people know. And we forget the truth of the matter, which is that what we know is highly complementary to what our friends, colleagues, and collaborators know. Now that's some easy definitions but what I want to share with you this evening just, is just a thin slice of some of the research data that I've managed to amass in a research project related to the imposter syndrome over the past year. And what I show you here is another part of how we can start to understand and quantify what the imposter phenomenon is. Now, it was defined and first coined back in 1978. 78 by Dr. Pauline Rose Clance and her colleagues. And as part of that work, they also in later years defined an imposter scale from zero up to 100. And that's what you can see on this x-axis here. Perhaps unsurprisingly, on the far left towards zero, that is to suggest that someone doesn't have imposter experiences, perhaps has never come across the term. It's not something that affects them in day-to-day -day life. 
It's nothing they would report. It doesn't stop them. On the opposite side of that same scale, up towards 100, that would represent someone who is likely to be suffering from chronic imposter experiences. They happen all the time. They happen severely. And they might happen to an extent that you convince yourself that you're not good enough to try something and you never do. So part of what I've been doing in uh, this project for a book that I'm working on over the past year is to look at where people lie on this scale more generally. And if I populate this with just some of the data that we have, we find that more often than not, that when uh, people volunteer to do this study, they report higher rather than lower levels of imposter experiences. So the red line there shows you the, the halfway mark, uh, 50 out of 100. But you can see that most of the data is actually squished up to the right-hand side. It's skewed up towards the higher numbers, which as the data grows and the demographic widens, we see that this skewed trend is actually staying rather consistent, which is beginning to suggest to us with the evidence that we have that more people experience the imposter phenomenon than do not experience the imposter phenomenon. And as I said, this is just one part of a bigger data-driven project that we're running to understand some of the misinterpreted elements of the imposter phenomenon in more detail. This final part that I'll show you here is actually where I lie on this imposter scale, or at least the last time that I took it. This number is not uh, set in stone. It can change over time. But I sit around the 70 out of 100 mark, which means that I suffer imposter experiences rather frequently. Uh, they're with me all the time. They could still be a lot more chronic and severe than they are, but it's a significant part of my working experience. Uh, and what you've seen here in this little video is actually something that I send back privately and individually to anyone who contributes to our study. So some of you out there may have taken part in this already, but this is one of the elements of personalized feedback that we've been giving people who help us grow the larger anonymous data set. So I did then mention that I'm going to come to three things that in relation to imposter experiences have really, truly helped me over the past five plus years. And the first of those three things I want to discuss with you later and impress upon you now is to celebrate your failures. When I first started applying for more senior roles about five years ago, four or five years ago, the first time I ever got a rejection, I didn't really handle it very well. And there's been a lot of things that I've come across since then that have helped me handle rejection better to move on to the next step, to keep growing and to keep moving towards success. So here's another one of these quotes that I love from the playwright Samuel Beckett. Ever tried, ever failed, no matter. Try again, fail again, fail better. The key part there is to fail better. When I mentioned the rejections I started getting about five years ago, when the first of those came in, I let my ego get the best of me. I thought I deserved to be on a shortlist. I wasn't. And rather than focusing on trying to up my game for the next time and to get better at these things, I went home, I was punching the pillow, I had tears in my eyes, I was acting like a big kid. I didn't have the resource at the time 
to try to take the failure for what it was and build some action, some responsibility of how to be better next time. So there are ways that we can fail better. And one way to do that that I find incredibly useful, something that I've now put on my website, is not simply to focus on your CV, which is the main thing we all do in our careers. We want to perfect and polish and present a CV as part of our job applications. And we're trying all the time to get more papers, more awards, more experience, more extracurricular activities, something on there that makes you stand out from the crowd. But what it doesn't help you do is to create a mental picture of the fullness of your efforts. And whilst we all create a CV, I would argue that most of us don't try to create a CV of failures, where as well as listing all your accolades and achievements in your CV, you have a complimentary document that shows all the times that you've failed, all the jobs that you got rejected from, all the papers that got bounced back from peer review, everything that you've done that's tried to get you to the next step that hasn't quite worked out. And I think so common is it that we focus on trying to build the positive picture of ourselves that we don't share just how much work it takes most of the time to get those successes that we want to share with everyone. And so, in fact, when I mention my uh, website, what I've done now is to have both of these documents or, you know, website friendly versions of them for everyone to see. And rather than having the scholarly links of where my papers are and citations are, the very first link that I've got on my biography on my website now is the CV of failures. And I think more of us can do that sort of thing. I think it's something that we can do for ourselves to see that every success that we've got has come with much more work behind it that we more often than not don't report to everyone else. So the first thing is to celebrate failure and work with it. The second thing that I've found incredibly valuable to tell myself and convince myself is worthwhile is just to give it a go. Don't worry about hitting the bullseye all the time, but finding a way to give it a go. Now that sounds desperately simple and might even sound patronising to some of you, but there's some reason behind this and reasons I think that we often forget in the moment when we scare ourselves away from trying something new. Then the next quote comes from one of my entrepreneurial heroes, Tim Ferriss. He is a best-selling author, podcaster and serial entrepreneur. In his very first book, The 4-Hour Workweek, he said something really profound that helped me get over my tendency to procrastinate and think that I was a fraud. And what Tim Ferriss said was this, For all the most important things, the stars will never align and the traffic lights of life will never all be green at the same time. Correct course along the way. Here's the frank details that were missing from that first recital. For all the important things in life, the timing always sucks. The stars will never align and the traffic lights of life will never all be green at the same time. Just do it and correct course along the way. Now that just do it part for me helped me because I do have a tendency to be a perfectionist. I don't want to take the next move until I'm absolutely certain everything is right, everything is polished and everything is in the right place. But what this says 
is if you just go for it, if you correct course along the way, if you don't care that nothing is perfect in the beginning, at least you've started, at least you've got yourself on the road. Because the worst thing you could do is to never start at all. Now here's a completely different way of looking at the same thing of how to give it a go. And it's a way to look at some of the unlikeliness of having a go at anything at all. Here's a rather rudimentary graphic of the world, but let's pretend for a moment that we've got a turtle swimming in the ocean and it's some other part in the world floating atop the water as a life raft, a rubber ring. And let's say that the turtle can understand you and you set the turtle the task of going under the water, submerging itself, and it's not allowed to come up again until it's aiming for that rubber ring, that life raft. And it can only come up again when it tries to get its head in the middle of the circle. So it has to go down underwater, swim over through the oceans to the rubber ring and come up only when it can pop its head underneath the middle of the ring. Now, what I'm predicting is probably happening in most people's minds at the moment is why the hell is this guy telling us about turtles swimming in the ocean? What does this have to do with anything? But once those thoughts have gone, I would hope that the next couple of thoughts in your mind might be that that action is incredibly unlikely to happen. It's very, very unlikely, astronomically unlikely, almost impossible that someone could go under the water and come up exactly where a tiny little rubber ring is in some part halfway around the world. Now, as unlikely and as daft as that might sound, there's something even more silly, and it's the odds of us ever being here. The odds of me sitting here talking to you, or you sitting there listening to me, talking with your friends, studying at university, doing any of it, the odds of all of your ancestors making it to this point for us to be listening and talking to one another is even more unlikely than the turtle thing. It's not one in 10. It's around one in 10 to the power of 2.7 billion. Now that's just, it's not ridiculous. It's just unfathomable. It's not worth trying to paint silly pictures of analogies of how unlikely that is. The point of the matter is it's such a large number that the thing to take away from it is that it's stupidly unlikely that you were ever born. And for me, understanding that fact is, I sound like I'm oversimplifying this, but for me, having that fact in my head and reminding myself of that all the time has been one of the most powerful numbers for me to know. So that every time I want to convince myself that I'm not good enough to do something, I give it a go anyway. This, this number in my head means that I don't care as much as I used to if I fail. I don't care if I need to correct course along the way because every time I try something new now, I always think about just how silly and unlikely it is that I was ever here at all. And that's why point number two is to give it a go. So here's one final way to get that second message across. If you are aiming at a target or a bullseye, you might say, ready, and then the next two things out your mouth would be, hopefully, aim and fire. Ready, aim, fire. But what about this instead? Ready, fire, then aim. Ready, fire, aim. 
get yourself ready, have a go, aim later, and then fire again. So Sam Walton of Walmart fame, or if you're in the UK, that's we know it as Asda. But this message for me, this other quote, was a really succinct way of saying all of that stuff that I've just said about giving it a go. Get yourself ready, but fire, 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 and then aim. If you overthink the ready and the aim part, you might never, ever fire. And that can be on taking the next move in your career or some other big step that you're procrastinating over. So here's the third and final point. The third and final tool that's really stuck with me to manage imposter experiences and keep moving forward, and that is to compare very, very carefully. It's very easy to compare apples with oranges and come up with conclusions that don't make sense. Comparing ourselves to people around us isn't just natural, it's part of the human condition. It's how we see where we are in the world, how our abilities are at this point in time and how we might improve. And we do the same thing with opinions, not just abilities. But comparing too much can take your focus away from what really matters and bettering yourself and caring too much about where someone else is rather than where you are and how you can improve yourself. So Natalie Portman, the famous actress, said sometimes your insecurities may lead you to embrace other people's expectations. But you can harness that inexperience to carve out your own path. If you focus on your own inexperience, you can worry about how good you are now versus how good you were then, rather than looking at what someone else expects of you or what someone else's ability is at the moment. Here's a rather more historical and I find quite funny way to approach this same description of comparing ourselves to other people. If you take Gottfried Leibniz, the co-inventor or co-discoverer, if you like, of calculus, you know, like, um, integration, differentiation, etc. He was a giant in his time, a polymath, not just a mathematician, but did many other things. And so too did the, the gentleman to the right, Denis Diderot, who on his CV can claim to have co-invented the encyclopedia. Now that's a line. But even though both of these gentlemen were giants in their time and both did a lot of things in a lot of different fields, Diderot came after Leibniz. And is, instead of focusing purely on his own efforts and what he could bring to the party, he said this. When one compares one's talents to Leibniz, one feels compelled to throw away their books and go die peacefully in some dark corner. Now that is sort of desperately sad, but I find quite funny at the same time because it puts in a single message what we can all do and certainly what I've done many times in my career, which is to focus on things like that person's got more papers than I do or that person's had this many positions in their career, I've only had this. Well, that person's a bit older than me, I'm only this age. And it's always me, A, comparing myself to B externally. And many times along the way, I've just completely forgotten to focus on myself and worried too much about where someone else is rather than where I am. And one way that this really manifests itself in modern times is in social media. I've had a great number of benefits from being online and many of us have. There's a lot of positive 
communities out there, especially on chemistry Twitter. But the fact that we've got social media makes these external social comparisons much, much easier than they used to be. And this is why younger generations are arguably now, although the evidence is growing, suffering more anxiety and mental challenges than in previous generations. Because the act of comparing yourself to someone else is so much easier now than it used to be. So we must, must, must compare carefully and focus on the main game that we can win, which is comparing ourselves now to ourselves then. So there's all of those three messages together. You have to celebrate your failures, find a way to give it a go and compare very, very carefully. This is very easy for me to say, right? You know, it looks like I've practiced this a lot. I have given this message before, but it means nothing if I've not been able to take my own medicine. So I want to end before we come back to this message on just a tiny little bit of one of the things I've done in my recent career that I could never have done if I never thought about these three messages. And it's this, I know our audience is spread in terms of where we're coming from and also what age the audience is this evening. So I'm going to assume that most people don't know what they're looking at. As much as it is a distressing image, I'm going to guess that you don't know what it is. That image on the right-hand side is the remains of an old oil rig called Piper Alpha. It used to exist off the northeast coast of Scotland near Aberdeen, a vibrant, very productive platform that made a lot of money for the company who ran it. But on the 6th of July 1988, a series of safety failures caused that once vibrant oil rig to turn into the burning inferno you see on the right-hand side. And those safety failures killed 160 men who were working on or around the rig on that evening. And only 61 men made it home. It's still one of the largest ever disasters of its kind in the oil and gas or process chemical sectors. There was a lot of financial damages on top of the clear human cost. The reason I mention it and how it relates to this story is that one of the men who were part of the 61 survivors was this man. And that's my dad. That's Mark with a K, Mark Reed Sr. I'm Mark with a C. And what you see on the left-hand side is an image of him recovering in a hospital after he made it home and made it off the burning inferno that was Piper Alpha. And you can see at that time, if you look at the tagline on this newspaper clipping, it says Mark Reed was battling to get back to a normal family life with his wife and 14-week-old son. And I was that 14-week-old son. I hadn't been around for very long when this happened. But what it meant was is that I was growing up. I had more exposure than most, more than I'd ever really want anyone to have, of not just what happens if safety goes wrong and accidents happen, but what can play out over the longer time. I was very lucky to have my father come home, but he suffered post-traumatic stress and other mental struggles, and he passed away a few years ago. So I saw very clearly how safety can go wrong and how it can play out over a very long time. And I wanted to do something about this because it's not just this personal story. This happens a lot in our own sector of chemistry on the same scale as events like Piper Alpha, but also in our university labs. We have a lot of accidents, a lot of preventable incidents. But I kept thinking maybe there's ways to make safety not so boring as it's perceived now. Maybe there are other ways 
that we can get the message out there and, and take our community to a higher level of safety, culture, awareness and training. And to do that, to cut a, a very long story short, I co-founded this company, Presight Safety. And amongst other things, what it's enabled me to do is to do some public speaking for companies, to tell my father's story and to build in some science about how it's important to think in the longer term when, when you're constructing your safety management systems in a particular organization. And more technologically, as I mentioned right at the start, in terms of the science that I do, this has also enabled us to look at virtual reality technologies and how simulating accidents can help us experience and train for accidents before we ever see the real life danger. I would never, ever have been able to do anything approaching this if I haven't taken my own medicine, if I hadn't celebrated failures, given it a go and compared carefully. The first two versions of that company failed and had different names. I had to bring someone on to help me get it to where it is now. I had to think about the fact that I'm only here once and it's ridiculous that I'm here at all. So I wanted to give it a go. And I spent as little time as possible comparing myself to other people that I think might be able to do it better. The important thing was to give it a try no matter what. The last message I leave with you on top of all of that is this one. <coughs> Excuse me. Is in this photograph here. It's my favourite one, arguably, in all of science. And this is one of the receptions for the 1965 Nobel Prize ceremony. In the middle, we see one of the most famous chemi uh, chemists to ever have inhabited organic chemistry. That's Robert Burns Woodward. So you can see he's rather serious and solemn. But my real scientific hero is the gentleman to his immediate right, our left. That's Richard Feynman, who won the Nobel Prize in the same year for physics, whereas R.B. Woodward won it for chemistry. And I look at this picture and I think the most important thing from anything that we do is to have fun with it. If you're not having fun, you need to find something else. So having fun is the most important thing. If you forget everything else this evening, I hope you can take that away from what I've shared with you. So that brings us to the end of the, the formal talk. I'm, again, I'm really looking forward to having some discussion. I do encourage you as much as possible to ask me any question that you like. If you would like to find out more or contribute to our research, I've left this QR code up. I can maybe share that again at the end after the discussion. And you can find out more there about our study and the book that's forthcoming over the next year. So thanks once again for all of you being here. I really appreciate this. I consider it a great privilege and I want to answer all of your questions. Thanks very much. Sophia. Great. Thank you so much, Mark. Um, that was an amazing talk. I know I'll be taking something from it because I've definitely suffered from imposter syndrome <laughs> over the years. Um, so, yeah, what I'd like to do with the Q&A is if you put in the chat, um, either that you want to ask a question um, or just put your question in the chat, um, if you put, I want to ask a question, then I will call on you. And then if you put the question, I will read it out for Mark to answer. Um, so yeah, if you just want to get your questions in um, about anything, about how you can participate in the study or um, just anything you want to ask Mark, um, go for it. Okay, great. So first we've got Katie who wants to ask a question. Katie, would you like to uh, turn on your microphone and ask your question? 
Hi, Mark. Thank you for your presentation. It was really interesting. Um, so I will confess, initially, I, uh, I'm not a chemist, but I work in the School of Chemistry on an Inclusion Matters project funded by the EPSRC. So we're looking yeah, yeah. at barriers to career progression. So a lot of what you're talking about really speaks to the kind of work that we're looking at around um, things that I, we, we take a very structural approach. So it's about thinking about how there are barriers to gaining access to funding, for example, and, and okay, moving okay. Through the career pipeline. And something I was thinking about, because um, I totally agree with your recommendations, I think it's really crucial that people are taking these opportunities and, and being encouraged to do so. I think sure, sure. The, the thing I'd like to ask you about is how do we get the people in the decision-making positions mm. to understand the importance of this as well? Because something I'm concerned about is that you know a CV of failures, the way that that's viewed could be really differently interpreted depending on your gender, your race, your sexuality, and like the sort of biases that creep in there in how well things like that are received. Um, I'm thinking about the kind of things that we see in, in internal sifting, where we're not totally aware of the, the biases that we bring to decision making. Um, so yeah, interested in your thoughts on that. Thank you. Yeah, that's a, a fantastic question, not least because it's multi-layered. So uh, forgive me if I don't come to everything. Um, try to get to the most important points here. Internal sifting is probably the, the practical element of, of what you mentioned. I'm giving you my opinion here. So this is based on my reading or research and and how I've come to manage this myself, but also found that I've helped others manage uh, points of imposter experiences. And even particularly in the sort of experience and scenario rather that you're mentioning with applying for jobs and internal sifting. Now that's all a preamble to say that one other thing that we all should really be aware of is what game we're playing and when. It might sound very cynical, but I, I don't say the word game to be cynical. I say the word game because there are ways to look at every career situation we're in through a game theoretic lens. That includes things like how people are picked and if we're all in a race to the bottom to develop one thing in particular and what have you. But understanding the rules of the game lets you understand what metrics are valued now what metrics are valued perhaps and a biased basis by those who are making the internal sifts. Some of that is in our control, some of it's outside our control. Certainly in the university environment, there are there are certain metrics that will be upheld as more valuable than others because they they play into the metrics that ultimately define how well a university does as well. Uh, universities are charities, but there are large elements of a university that are business driven. And I, I don't think we should ever be under any illusion that it's anything different than that. So firstly, we have to understand what is driving the decisions that are made. And I think it's often too easy to jump to the conclusion that, that the people making the decisions are biased in their own right. It might be, in fact, that the people making those decisions are locked into how they make those decisions as well. So there's a fuller picture to consider here. And this is all still at the level of how the environment affects the individual before you ever get to any conversation on race or gender 
or anything in the identity sphere. Does that help with your question, Katie? Yeah, I think it picks up on um, the sort of things that we discuss a lot in our research around um, understanding the environment and how it influenced people, um, which is really crucial. And I think something I really like to see is people in those positions of power doing the kind of things that you say, like celebrating failures, because I think setting an example mm-hmm, is mm-hmm. crucial. Um, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, I, I agree with that wholeheartedly. In fact, it's it's one of the last things I'm doing at the moment with the, the book that I'm bringing together. Most of it is through the personal lens and, and some of these tools of which I've mentioned a few this evening. But the very last part of it that I'm still trying to articulate appropriately is a message to leaders, not just to individuals to manage these experiences, but how leaders themselves can set an example. So I, I, I agree with what you're saying. I think it's an important point that needs to be given a direct message. Absolutely. And on the point of, you know, comparison, that's something that's yes, yes. quite hard to get over because it's such a reality in academia. You know, we're constantly yes, looking yes. for jobs, for opportunities and things like that. And I think it's what you've shared is a nice way of thinking about it within yourself so that you're not constantly thinking, oh, I've not done the same thing as somebody else or whatever. Yeah, if yeah. I- understood you correctly you, you, you have it exactly yeah and you've also picked up on the important thing that i should clarify which is um uh, there is no real escape from social comparison it, it is really built into how we uh, how we think act and behave as a real part of the human condition the thing that we can change is how we interact with the inevitability of comparing ourselves to other people and we can understand what's happening to us. We can take a, a present, mindful approach and just be aware that social comparison exists such that then you can come to terms with that and focus. Again, I use the game terminology, but comparing yourself to someone else isn't a game you can win because you never really understand the fullness of how someone else got to know. What you can understand and take responsibility for yourself is how you got to know. And if you can compare yourself now versus you then, that's a game you can always play because you can always move in some fashion to improve yourself at this point versus how you were on a particular skill or ability at some previous point in time. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Katie. Great, that was an amazing question. Yeah, and Jean's just saying it's like using personal bests in sport. You need to compare yourself to yourself and, you know, continually try and improve. That's great. Um, So we don't have any more questions in the chat at the moment. Um, Oh, we've got a question from Magnus. Um, Science subjects are often studied by creative minds, those who are on the autistic spectrum, dyslexic, dyspraxia or similar. Anxiety and perfectionism go hand in hand with these differences. So that may well feed into imposter syndrome. Do you have any comments on this or have you investigated this? Hmm. Not those specific uh, drivers for imposter experiences directly. Uh, It's it's an excellent point to raise awareness for everyone here that whilst we talk about the imposter phenomenon or any other such mental challenge on an umbrella term basis, you know, we, we label it as one thing. 
Certainly one thing we've found from our research is when we're looking at the open answers to open questions, there are no two that are the same. Themes might emerge, but the reasons for which someone feels a particular way or has engaged with the imposter experiences is incredibly individual. And we should always remember that. And this remains true for those who might have those uh, particular mental challenges such as um, or learning difficulties such as dyslexia and, and the other things that you listed. So how one comes to feel like an imposter should never be encapsulated as all of these people feel this way for this one reason. Every single person you engage with should be treated as an individual. Because although all of them might say that they feel this way, they will feel that way for very different reasons. And we should never try to put someone in a generalised description. Now, one thing I'll mention, um, although I haven't looked at those particular conditions as, as it relates to imposter experiences in detail, one thing that I have come across from my growing experience in the, the entrepreneurial space is to look at the types of people who thrive in non-traditional environments, um, environments that you could say are outside of academia. Uh, I've come across some work to suggest that you know, if we take dyslexia as an example, there are many dyslexic people who, for one reason or another, find that they can turn that into their own superpower. I've uh, come across a, a really inspirational academic in the business school at Strathclyde, Professor Nigel Lockett, who blogs as the dyslexic professor, and he's also an entrepreneur. And he's had to find ways of uh, not just admitting to or accepting that dyslexia is a, a learning dif difficulty for him, but to turn that into an advantage rather than adversity. And finding where the opportunities lie in something that everyone else might assume is a hurdle for you can can be the thing that perhaps counterintuitively sets you apart in the end. That's great. Um, yeah, Magnus is saying that he absolutely agrees. Um, so now we've got Amanda Jarvis who has a question. Amanda, would you like to turn on your microphone? Uh, hello, thanks for that. Um, Hi, Amanda. I was uh, wondering, and it kind of relates a little bit to Magnus's question. Um, yeah. So obviously, a lot of the answers that people might have to imposter syndrome phenomenon type questions overlap a lot with those that people have from other mental health issues, such as depression and anxiety. Yes. Did you, in your work that you do, try and separate out any of them? So have you looked at the overlap um, and thus whether actually what in some questions it's been identified as depression and anxiety, not imposter syndrome. Yeah, that's uh, that really gets to the heart of why a lot of the imposter phenomenon can be misinterpreted as such, um, because all of these things are a complicated mess of wires <laughs> that are overlapping with one another. And this is why in our, uh, in our own study um, I worked with, a psychologist friend of mine to make sure that we got the questions right. So part of it is the scale that I mentioned, that's sort of set in stone. That's the semi-quantitative wet finger in the air of, of where someone might lie. But the important part to really set things 
as imposter experiences and not other things is the the open part of the self-assessment that we've been sharing with people to let them say in as many words as possible what they are considering to be imposter experiences and from that what we're starting to do is to break out the themes that will allow us to to make the complex picture a little bit simpler and to see where in some cases someone might label it as a it's actually b uh, so it's not it's not ever going to be an easy task but you've hit the nail on the head as i said because it's an important thing that relates to how so many people can misinterpret this yeah and i guess what on you do of, as a result of it as well because uh, yes yes because uh, to give you one example um you know the imposter phenomenon really is the child of a much older psychological sociological discovery called relative deprivation which was first unearthed during the war years and that was all to do with how people compare themselves to others in a similar or very different situation so that has now become part of the canon of what the imposter phenomenon is but that's one example of how the imposter phenomenon relates to something that itself is really a much bigger can of worms and can lead to a lot of easy misinterpretations. And a different question. So I was once, uh, re this is someone else's opinion, um, but I thought it was a quite an interesting take on the imposter phenomenon and particularly maybe why it's overrepresented in sciences or in research, which is, yes. is it not, or their argument was it is actually we we are imposters in that we don't know everything and that is exactly the position one should be in because you are trying to find something out. So what do you think to that kind of comment? Um, like, is it a problem or is it actually inherent to what we do? And is that what you see when you've got 70, 80% scores for most people? Yeah, a lot of it comes back to people when they reflect openly as, um, a really acute awareness of what they don't know and to your point Amanda about being in our realm in the sciences we're made very acutely aware of that with the explosion that is the literature and trying to keep up with that and in relation in part to social media is you know watching everyone else's papers get published and being acutely aware therefore of how long you might have been waiting for your own peer review or something that you've uh, failed to put out or not wanted to put out elements like that and many others make it much easier within our realm in academia to have reminders of what we don't know rather than what we do know on top of that i've mentioned in your previous question about um related or let's say sister psychological phenomena that relate to imposter experiences and one of them that really is between the crosshairs for academia is something called the big fish little pond effect where it's very common for someone who's done very well at school let's say and wants to then go and explore the academic path at university to then find themselves in that much bigger pond and be scared from doing as well as they otherwise might so there's some um, i've just tried to get to the bottom of researching this to do a bit of writing on it but there's some wildly counterintuitive data out there that suggests that people who find themselves in, let's say, the more prestigious or openly high-ranking institutions will actually have a lower self-confidence than someone 
who's at a mid-tier university because they've been made so acutely aware of how red the water is in the shark tank that they find themselves in. And so, say, you know, the way that which we badge a good university can actually be very counterproductive for the people who are working within that institution. Thanks, Amanda. That was a great question. Um, so this event is ending at five. So what I'll do is I'll take Jean's question now. Um, and then after that, Mark can put the QR code back up on the screen. So um, sure. yeah, Jean, would you like to put on your camera and microphone, please? Hi, Mark. Thanks so much for that that talk. That was great. Um, I was wondering you. what you thought about, um, I guess it, it speaks to what Amanda was speaking about and also Katie. This mm -hmm. idea in academia of the the sort of lone genius model, if you like, you know, where <laughs> the it's it's a the person is very much judged on, um, you know, that all of the scientific creativity comes from this one person's brain, you know, and and they're the people who write the grants based on the on on them as individuals, rather than in lots of other sectors where it would be much more team driven now I know you have scientific yeah. teams as well but in academia it certainly seems to me that 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 thing of of this one person at the top of a of a, of a lab group or or a department you know it, it is very focused on the individual and I was wondering what your thoughts were on that in relation to imposter syndrome you know it's, it's much it's, it's easier to be harder on yourself I guess if you feel yeah. like you as yeah. a person are being judged rather than a team, it's a team effort or the team hasn't managed to get the sales that they needed, you know, that sort of thing. I'm yeah. just wondering what your thought, the comparison between sectors, I guess, and, and how we how we reward that that those sorts of efforts. Yes, on the individual sense, it's a balancing act because I've seen and read arguments both for and against someone having an ego. Yes, someone can have a big brash ego and it can play against how others see them. And others would argue that having no ego is good because it keeps you humble. But an argument I'm most convinced by is that it has to be in balance. If you don't have any ego at all, you'll never give anything a go. You'll put yourself down to the point that you'll never try anything. But you have to balance that with you know points like I raised earlier, understanding your place in this weird existence we find ourselves in so that you you have the balance of being humble and not realizing your god's gift to the world just realizing that there is an element of luck here but then use your ego to realize that you can work hard to achieve things the element of naming uh, you know having the soul superstar if you like um that's that's a touchy one to go to but i think even particularly i would argue that uh, chemistry itself is quite a quirk. You know, we're very good at naming labs after ourselves. You know, I, I, I showed you right at the start, I've fallen right into the same pattern. I've, uh, our research side is called Read Group Research. But I'm about to take up a new opportunity to, to grow the academic side of what I do beyond what I've been able to so far. And I'm really, really seriously considering renaming the whole thing as something else to make it much clearer that it's a team effort and it's towards a certain theme of research. And I say that because that helps balance the the team aspect of it and the scientific focus. 
but that's not to say I'm letting go of me entirely. That's why I say I think the ego is in balance. I'm not going to change my website. That looks very sort of egotistical. My name's all over that. But I think it's important to have both sides, the bigger picture where the team is contributing and having the ego for yourself to show elements of self-improvement along the way. Great. Thank you, Mark. That's great. Thank, Thank you. you. That was amazing. Um, Thank you so much, everybody, for coming. That's Unfortunately, that's all we've got time for today. And, yeah, thank you, everybody, for coming. And, um, yeah, thank you very much, Mark. My pleasure, Sophia, and thanks again to everyone for being here. I really do appreciate your time. If you like what you're hearing on the podcast, head over to the website where not only will you find the written blog versions of these podcasts, you'll find my leadership blog series, the daily thought series, and information about my book on managing the imposter phenomenon. We also have even more free resources and webinars linked to the YouTube channel. So head on over to dr-mark-read.com. That's dr-mark with a c-reid.com. Thanks again for listening.